بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مذل له ومن يذلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد مجيبات السسر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so we've officially reached hadith number 17 uh, from Imam Nawawi's 42 hadith. And I thought since we took Ramadan off, we just do a quick recap of the 10 hadith uh, that we took uh, since our last recap. So we did our last recap at hadith number 5. And today we'll just be recapping from hadith number 6 to 16, bidnillahi ta'ala. So hadith number 6 was the hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, where he said this religion is sincere advice. And we said to whom? He said it is to Allah, to his book, his messenger, and to the leaders of the Muslims and their common folk. This hadith was summarized as to be one of the fundamental hadith of this religion. And as you can see, while the wording is very general, there are many specific lessons that one can derive from it. So here the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he's using um, an Arabic formula or equation, I guess you could say, where the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will often compare two things just to show the importance and severity of something. So when the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, Al-Hajju Arafah, that the most important part of Hajj is Arafah, or An-Najmu Tawbah, or feeling regret and remorse is Tawbah within of itself. Here the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying, Ad-Deenun Nasiha, that this religion is sincere advice. And when you look at this hadith in its totality, you realize that it's not just advice, it's about fulfilling the relationship to these five categories. Okay, it's about fulfilling the relationship to these five categories. At the head of them is a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then to the leaders of the Muslims and then to the common folk. So how does one fulfill the relationship between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the slave? This is built upon one simple principle and that is the recognition that we are meant to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is how that relationship is fulfilled by making sure that the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are fulfilled. The right of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is to take him as an example and to follow his way. The right of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to make sure that when one needs guidance, then one refers back to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To the leaders of the Muslims, this is to help them in, in what is good and to advise them when we see something which is bad. And then to the common folk, this is the general concept of enjoining good and forbidding evil. That if we see the common folk doing something good, we join them therein. And if we see them doing something bad, then we stop them from it. So this is a, a brief summary of hadith number six. Hadith number seven was actually a hadith that we, uh, we didn't cover. And I did that intentionally because there are a couple of hadith in Imam al-Nawi's 40 hadith that I thought were very sensitive and due to timing, you know, it might not be appropriate to cover it at those time. But the point is to cover those hadith eventually at the end. So I've saved those hadith for the end. And for those of you that don't know what hadith number 7 is, hadith number 7 was the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, where he said, I've been ordered to fight the people until they testify that there's no one worthy of worship other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So obviously this hadith needs context and it needs explanation. But due to the sensitive timing of it, we've left it till the end and that is when we will cover it. Hadith number 8 
was the hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, what I have forbidden for you, avoid, and what I have ordered you to do, do as much of it as you can. For verily it was only the excessive questioning and the excessive disagreeing with their prophets that destroyed the nations before you. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is teaching us how to understand the words of Allah وتعالى, and the Messenger of Allah when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prohibit something, they forbid something, then you have to stay away from it. There's very, very few instances where you're actually allowed to embark upon those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden. Whereas when it comes to the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then they have to be fulfilled to the best of one's ability. To the best of one's ability. So let's break these down. Let us look at the prohibitions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when they might be allowed. When they might be allowed. So for example, something like eating something which is impermissible. Okay? An individual is in a situation of life and death. He's stuck somewhere. He doesn't see anything to eat and he knows that he's going to die. Then he's allowed to eat from that impermissible substance or drink from that impermissible substance as much as would give him life to continue to survive. Right? So you have to stay away from that thing altogether. However, in the situation of necessity, then you are allowed to do so. Likewise, when it comes to the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He commands us to pray. Right? So this commandment of prayer, it needs to be fulfilled to the best of our ability. And when we're traveling, Allah has given us a concession. When an individual has a time of difficulty, he's been sick, he has a, you know, surgery, then there's a concession there that he's allowed combining his prayer as well. So those are the concessions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives. So the general commandment over here is that when Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam prohibits something, you have to stay away from it. Very, very few exceptions to that rule. Whereas when it comes to the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Allah and His Messenger command you to do something, then this is based upon one's capability. And based upon one's capability, one should try to do as much as they possibly can. Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, goes on to explain what was it that destroyed the people of the past. And he mentions two things over here. Their excessive questioning and their excessive disagreeing. So how would excessive questioning destroy a people? Who can tell me? How would excessive questioning destroy a people? Go ahead. Fantastic. So there's two elements to this. Element number one, during the time of the Sahaba. So Allah's Messenger وسلم, he would explain something, trying to keep something very, very simple, but then someone would come and ask a question and complicate things for the people, right? So revelation would come down and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would make it, make it mandatory and make it obligatory, right? So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he's teaching his companions over here that look, when I tell you something, Try to understand from it to the best of your ability. Don't ask further questions, don't complicate it further, because I fear for you that revelation will come down and then it's going to become mandatory for you, right? So in those situations, he's teaching the companions not to ask questions. And that is why generally, when you look at the questions that are asked to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, very few of them are asked by his close companions. But rather you'll have, you know, a Bedouin man came to the Messenger of Allah and asked this question. Why was that the case? Because it was the Bedouins that lived on the outskirts. They didn't have regular time to study with the Messenger of Allah وسلم, And that is why they would come and ask their questions. Whereas the close companions that lived inside of Medina, 
very rarely would they ask questions because they were constantly being taught by the Messenger of Allah And they knew that if something wasn't clear or if they did something wrong, then the Messenger of Allah would come to correct them. Then the second element to this is that questioning, as the brother mentions, it leads to further complications, right? And there's certain, you know, guidelines to asking questions. A lot of times when people ask questions, they're foolish and useless questions, right? Absolutely foolish and useless questions. Things that aren't relevant to them. And Allah's Messenger وسلم, wanted to stop this from happening. That you should only ask questions which are relevant and important to you. So, so someone asks you, you know, what if Muslims go to the moon one day and it's time for salah? What do we do in that situation, right? In that situation, let's get to the moon first and we'll figure it out. Right? There's going to be much, much greater issues that need to be resolved at that time rather than you know, figuring out what to do. How are you going to make wudu in your astronaut suit? You know, how are you going to make tayammum even before that? So all these issues, you know, let's take it step by step. So when you're asking a question, you want to look at three things ta'ala. Number one, what is my intention behind asking this question? What is my intention behind asking this question? Is my intention to show off? Is my intention to just cause fitna? You know, what is my intention? And the intention should be, obviously for the sake of gaining knowledge, to clarify misconceptions or to clarify doubts or to increase oneself in knowledge for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, is that can I actually implement that which I'm about to ask? Am I, can I actually implement what I'm about to ask? So a lot of the times, you know, we'll ask questions that we can't even implement, right? So they're not relevant to our situation, not relevant to our times. So then you'll want to refrain from it. If it is relevant, then go ahead and ask. And then number three is, is it something which is beneficial? You know, am I actually going to benefit from asking this question? Or is it just going to cause further problems? Or is it just going to cause further problems? Now, if I was to give a subset to this, one has to follow the methodology of our predecessors when it comes to you know, what are we allowed to question and what are we not allowed to question? So you'll never see from the Sahaba radiallahu anhum asking the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala legislate this? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not legislate this? Right? So the question of why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did something, that sort of question, it shouldn't be asked. Right? Because it's not our position to ask. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us in the Quran that we are the ones that are going to be asked and we are the ones that will have to answer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not going to be questioned because Allah is the higher authority. So to ask why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did something, that's not an appropriate question. But one can ask, you know, what are some of the wisdoms we can derive from this legislation, right? So that's something you are allowed to ask. Number two, you don't question the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees something, you know, that's how it is. You accept it for what it is, and then you try to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through that decree. And then number three, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he talks about something specific, and that is questioning related to particular aspects of aqidah. And there's three particular things that I'd mention over here. Number one is questioning where everything comes from, to the extent that one starts to question, where did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala come from, right? So that specific line of questioning is impermissible. Number two is questioning, you know, what if so and so had happened? So thinking about other scenarios for the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said that asking, you know, what if, yani, lo, 
that it opens the door for the actions of shaitan. Shaitan starts to whisper in your head that you know things could have gone another way. Just deal with reality the way it is and don't question what it would be another way. And then number three, this is particularly related to you know those things that one is not meant to truly understand, right? So understanding the concept of the human spirit, right? The, the people of the past, they asked the Messenger of Allah وسلم, about this and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He revealed a, a very clear, a clear verse about it. He says, as for the, the ruh, وَمَا أُوتِيتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا That you don't have a lot of knowledge about it, so stay away from asking about these questions, right? So those particular aspects of Aqidah, we want to refrain from. Then the second element he mentions is just disagreeing with the prophets and disagreeing with the people of knowledge. So now over here, the issue isn't disagreeing with one of itself, right? One is allowed to disagree with another individual. He's allowed to disagree with a scholar, but with conditions to it, right? And those conditions are that if you're going to disagree, make sure you have a proof. It can't just be, hey, you know, I don't agree with your opinion. Why? Because I feel like it, right? That sort of logic, it doesn't work in Islam. But rather, if you're going to disagree, provide a reasoning for it. Provide a reasoning for it. And I want to provide you with, you know, a general guideline of discussion in Islam. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, he teaches us a very basic guideline, and that is three steps. Number one, if you're going to make a claim, then you have to substantiate that claim with a proof. So if you're going to say such and such is halal, such and such is haram, then you have to bring a proof for that claim. Number two, if you're going to bring a proof, you have to prove its authenticity. You have to prove its authenticity. We don't have room for a discussion where the proofs that you're bringing are not authentic, right? So you have to prove that it's actually an authentic proof. So obviously verses from the Quran, they're definitely authentic. With the hadith, you have to prove its authenticity. Even with statements of the Sahaba, you actually have to prove that this Sahabi's opinion in this particular situation is valid for a, as a proof at this given time. And then number three, is that after you've made a claim and brought the proof, after you've proved the authenticity, then you have to prove the relevancy of this proof. Then you have to prove the relevancy of this proof to the discussion that you're having. Then you're bringing the relevancy of the proof to the discussion that you're having. So if there's a hadith that's talking about, you know, having good akhlaq, and then all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, zakat, then you'll see that this is a bit far-fetched. And I'll give you a very clear example of this. So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, was talking about the laws of inheritance, right? And he's teaching the Sahaba that when one leaves a will, he's allowed to leave one-third of his will to someone who's not going to inherit from him. So, so not your brother, not your mother, not your father, but someone like a second or third cousin, or like a charity organization. You're allowed leaving one-third of your wealth to them before you pass away in your will. And he says, الثلث والثلث كثير That, you know, leave one third, and even a third, that's, you know, a lot of money. So he's kind of discouraging doing something like that, but it's permissible to do so. When you look at the issue of uh, Islamic finance, and they're talking about, you know, debt to asset ratios, and they're talking about, you know, um, what is the, the amount that is allowed so that you can invest in a company, they use the hadith of the Messenger of Allah kathir that you're allowed up to you know, a one-third debt-to-asset ratio in this situation. Now this sort of istidlal is far-fetched. Another example, when we're doing the khatib training workshop, one of the opinions for Salatul Jum'ah that we mentioned is that the scholars mentioned you need to have 300 people for Salatul Jum'ah to be valid. 
right? And we said that this is very, very far-fetched. Why? Because those 300 people, they derived it from the Battle of Badr. There were 300 people in the Battle of Badr, so now we need 300 people for Jummah to be valid. That's an istidlal that is very, very far-fetched. So you have to make sure that your dalil is relevant. So now that's from the logical aspect from it. Now in terms of adab and akhlaq, again, very important to be sincere when the person is disagreeing. A lot of times when people have discussions, they have debates, it's not about you know, finding the correct answer and reaching the truth, but it's about proving that I'm smarter than you, I have the ability to put you down, I have the ability to make you look stupid. And that should never be the case. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, prohibited us from that. So it's very important to be sincere that their goal should always be to reach the truth. Number two, the importance of good adab and good akhlaq. You know, making sure that you're not going to lose your temper, making sure that you're not using uh, you know, obscene words or, or bad words, making sure that you're always remaining calm and tame. And this is what you see from the scholars of the past, that they would have these really, really intense debates, but they always retained that akhlaq. And just because they differed in opinions of fiqh, it didn't allow you know, them to, uh, to destroy the bonds of brotherhood. Because the bonds of brotherhood are always going to be more important than our difference of opinions in fiqh. So these differences in opinion and fiqh are meant to bring us together through good discussion. And they're not meant to destroy the community and divide us further apart. So that's something very important to understand. So when disagreeing is mentioned, it's not disagreeing in the, from a holistic sense. But rather you are allowed to disagree, but make sure you know who you're disagreeing with. When it comes to the Messenger of Allah and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's no room for disagreement. They are the ultimate authority. We do not question them. We do, you know, unconditionally accept what they have to say. But when it comes to the people of knowledge, when it comes to people in the community, then you're allowed to disagree with them, but with certain adab and certain akhlaq. Any questions so far on hadith number six or hadith number eight? I know I'm going really, really fast, but I just want to cover everything. So every two hadith will take a small break. If anything isn't clear, then we can clear stuff up. Go ahead. Sometimes if you uh, sit down with friends, they say something about religious matter, and you see that they are telling something uh, that's uh, not correct. And how do you and do you keep quiet or just do you rectify them? If you rectify them, they start to argue. What do you do? With this? So the general rule is: uh, if something is said in public then it should be corrected in public. If something is said in private, then it should be corrected in private. So if you know for sure that what this person is saying is absolutely incorrect, then you should you'd tell them, look, this is not correct at all. And either you provide the proof at that given point saying, look, this is why it's not correct, or tell them, look, I'll show you the proof after of why it's not correct. But you should correct them right away. If you think that this they will start to argue or something, it makes them look bad. You know, history and experience teaches us the one that becomes argumentative, in the eyes of the people, he'll lose the battle, right? So when people start to argue, they naturally look bad. So make your point in a very nice, calm and gentle way. And if they become argumentative, you just convey the message. You're not there to argue or to debate. Any other questions? Go ahead. Fantastic. So when it comes to matters of qadr, understanding the reality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, you know, particular things that we weren't given a lot of knowledge of, we're allowed to seek knowledge to the degree that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught us, right? 
So our understanding of those subject matters needs to come from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about those subject matters. To get philosophical and to go to you know, books of philosophy to try to understand those subject matters, that is when it becomes haram to do so. Right? Because those are, first of all, it's the ijtihad of a human being. And the ijtihad of a human being is going to be very limited. Number two, their sources of understanding are completely different from the sources of Islam. And then number three, their goals are you know, very different as well. The Greek philosophers didn't believe in heaven and hell. You know, our ultimate goal is to avoid hell and to get into Jannah. So that is why the, those guidelines are generally there. So seek those subject matters as far as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger have taught them. That's the general rule, inshallah. Go ahead. Right. What should you do? Fantastic. Very good question. And this goes back to a methodology in learning. And I believe it's very important that everyone has a methodology in terms of how they're going to learn their deen. Okay? So traditionally what is proposed was that when our kids grow up in Muslim countries, they're going to be going to a madrasa. In that madrasa, they're taught a particular madhab, whether the Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, or Hanbali madhab. And that is how you know, our kids are brought up on a particular madhab. Living in the West is a completely different story. However, a similar guideline needs to be established as well. And that is that you should have one reference point for your knowledge. Your local imam in your community, your local sheikh in the community, he should be your reference point to who you go back to when there's some sort of disagreement. And what he says, you should accept. Now the three guidelines that you should look for in that person. Number one, that person has to be known for knowledge. Number two, they have to be known for acting upon their knowledge. And then number three, they should be known for their good akhlaq. So these three things, if you find them in your local imam, in your local sheikh, take him as your teacher. And when you have a problem, let him make that decision for you. He's learnt, he's the one that will be accountable in, the, in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not the average layman. So that is the methodology for learning that should be established. One of the biggest problems that we face is that when people don't have this methodology, they're like, okay, let me, number one, let me go online. I'll see what it says online. So you Google your question online, you have like 13 different answers. You'll have like a Shia answer, a Qadiani answer, a Sunni answer. Then from the Sunni answers, you have like each madhab giving an answer. And you're like, okay, 13 different opinions. What do I do here? Let me just take the easiest one. Islam does not work like that. And that is how we actually end up destroying our faith altogether. So in that situation where there is a disagreement, you need to make sure you have a reference point in terms of who you're going back to, in terms of who you're going back to. Now, what you practice versus what else is valid are two different things. You should be practicing what you feel is the closest to the truth. So when your teacher tells you, look, this is why we implement this, this is why we're doing this, and this is what the proof for it is, that's what you should implement. And at the same time, realize that as long as someone else has a proof for their opinion, we should be understanding and accepting of that opinion even though we may not implement it ourselves. We should implement that which our teacher is teaching us at that given time. That is my humble opinion. Wallahu ta'ala ala. Okay, let's go on to hadith number 9. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Allah the Almighty is good and accepts only that which is good. And verily Allah has commanded the believers 
to do that which he commanded the messengers. So the Almighty has said, O oh, you messengers, eat of the tayyibat and perform righteous deeds. And Allah the Almighty has said, O oh, you who believe, eat from the lawful things we have provided for you. Then he وسلم, mentioned the case of a man who has journeyed far and is disheveled and dusty and who spreads his hands out to the sky saying, O oh Lord, O oh Lord. While his food is haram, his drink is haram, his clothing is haram, and he has been nourished from haram. So how then will his supplication be answered? So in this hadith, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is talking about eating from the halal and pure things. And eating from the halal and pure things we mentioned is of two types. Number one is that the money that is used to buy that food needs to be halal. So you need to make sure that the money that you're using, that money that is coming into your house, that you're using, what to buy things with, that needs to be halal. Because that is going to be the first element of barakah. Then number two, is that the second thing you need to look at is the food itself. Does it meet the criterion of being not only halal, but it also has to be good and nourishing for the body. Because sometimes something may be halal, but it's not necessarily good and nourishing for the body. Right? So we've, we talked about things, I remember doing this halakha and particularly, we had like a long discussion on can we eat McDonald's, can we eat Burger King and all those things. The conclusion I mentioned was, even if you follow the opinion that it is halal to do so, the sharia discourages eating those foods just because they're not healthy, right? So you want to find a healthy alternative uh, to those things. And then you want to take it even further, you know, try to eat organic foods. Try to eat you know, and drink from those things that implement fair trade. Those are the type of things that you should be striving for. And here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, teaches us a very important lesson. That an individual that is not striving for halal in terms of his income and in terms of his food, when his dua is not being answered, he has no one to blame but himself. And then we talked about the impediments of dua. What are the things that prevent dua from being answered? And this is one of them. One's income not being halal. One's food not being halal. One's clothing not being from halal. You know, all of these things, these are the things that we mentioned that are impediments. So as a general category, the more sins that you commit, then the more likely your dua will not be answered. And it's time to do some self-reflection at that time. So in terms of income being halal, and I remember having this discussion at that time, what if you're in a situation where you know your mother, your father, they deal with interest regularly? Or you know that you know, the money that they get is from like gambling, they're very you know, heavy gamblers. Are we allowed to take from that money or not? What if they're buying the groceries with it? What do you do in that situation? And we mentioned two things at that time. Number one, is that it is obviously incumbent upon us to advise the family members of our household. That if they're doing something wrong, it's very important that we advise them not to do those things. That's the first thing. Number two is realizing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not burden a soul with the sins of another. So if someone else is committing a crime, you will not get that sin for it. And particularly when it comes to money, we have a general principle in Islam that when money changes hands, as long as that money was not stolen, then that money becomes purified. So you have person X, Y, Z, you know that he got his money from like interest or from something haram. He comes to your store to buy something. There's an exchange of money taking place. Even though that money was earned from haram, now there's an exchange taking place. That money now becomes halal once it becomes exchanged, right? So that's in terms of the principles of wealth. So when money changes hands, 
uh, it purifies the wealth within of itself and we are not burdened by the sins of another. So if someone else in your family is doing something haram and things are being purchased with that money, then it still remains halal for you. However, part of being a good son and a good relative is advising you know, our family members that look, this is haram and we need to stay away from it. The general reminder from this hadith being that when du'as aren't being answered, we always look internally. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the most generous, the most kind, He wants to answer our du'as and He will answer our du'as as long as we take the steps for it. So make sure there's no impediments and once you've tried your best, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give it to you. And if Allah delays it, then know that Allah delayed it for a reason, He thought it was best for you. And if He still doesn't grant you what you answered for, after you've taken away all of the impediments, then realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will replace it with something that is even better for you, either in this dunya or in the akhirah, or keep you away from an equivalent amount of harm. This is like a promise from Allah's Messenger wasallam that Allah answers all of our du'as in three ways, as long as the impediments are taken care of. That either Allah gives us what we want when we ask for it, number two, He delays it till a time that it is better for us, and number three, He doesn't give us what we want, but He gives us something better, or keeps us away from an equivalent amount of harm. Hadith number 10. The hadith of the grandson of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, where he said, leave that which makes you doubt for that which does not make you doubt. So here, this teaches us one of the fundamental principles in Islam, what we called al-qawaid al-fiqhiyah al-kubra. The five major fiqh principles that all of the sharia is based upon. Does anyone remember what they are? Go ahead. Well, we'll, we'll do two hadith at a time. We'll do two hadith at a time. So I need the five major fiqh principles that our deen is based upon. The easiest, easiest way, not the <laughs> Your general concept is true, but the wording is a bit off. So, al-mashakkatu tajlibu taysir. That hardship always brings about ease into the religion. So anytime you face a hardship, ease will be brought about. That's one. That is not correct, but good effort. You want to go give it a second shot? Go ahead. Al-Adam Muhakkama, fantastic. So the cultural norms of a people, when the Sharia does not define something, then that culture will take precedence. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, you got it, you got it. The opposite of doubt. What's the opposite of doubt? Okay. So what is, go ahead. No, no, you can do it, you can do it. So certainty cannot be removed. Fantastic. So, So certainty is not removed by doubt. So if a person is certain about something, then that certainty cannot be removed till another certainty comes. So that's three of them. We're missing two of them. Number one is like the very first hadith of Imam al-Nawis. What was the very first hadith that we studied in Imam al-Nawis? So that actions are judged by their intentions. Al-umur bimaqasidiha. Actions are judged by their, are based upon their motives and their intentions. So that is Al-Umur uh, Bimaqasidihah, that's number four. And what's number five? Okay, and the last one. What is the last one? So there's one that deals with harm. What is the principle when it comes to harm? Go ahead. And you should not allow what else? You cannot harm someone else, nor should you? You can't harm yourself. 
That's a general rule. You shouldn't harm yourself. But you shouldn't allow harm to be done to you, right? La darara wa la dirar. That's the hadith that is based upon. And this is that the general principle in Islam is that all harm is to be removed. So harm to yourself, harm to others. That's the general principle that it should be removed. So now one of the principles that we talk about is the, about certainty. And one of the proofs that we talk about certainty is this very hadith over here. That when you have doubt about something, that doubt uh, should be removed. And that doubt will be removed by certainty. So the Messenger of Allah he teaches Hassan over here that leave that which you doubt for that which you do not doubt. Now the important discussion to have over here is what constitutes valid doubt, right? When is it considered valid doubt? And I'll tell you, you know, one of the discussions I was reading today was about should Muslims be boycotting Starbucks or not, right? Now, Starbucks, it seems like every couple of years they release a statement that, you know, Starbucks does not support Israel. And this discussion always comes up, but the CEO of Starbucks, you know, is, is an open and clear Zionist, and he likes to, to support uh, Israel, from what I've read at least. So that's what I'm basing it upon. So now, should Muslims still be boycotting Starbucks? And one of the proofs that, you know, someone mentioned is that we should leave that which we doubt for that which we do, do not doubt. So can we apply this hadith in this situation? Yes, sir. Who says we can apply this hadith? Okay. And who says no, we can't apply this hadith? Well, how about everyone else? Everyone's just confused. <laughs> in terms of applying it over here, I believe it's not permissible to apply this hadith over here. Why? Because what is the source of our doubt? The source of our doubt is that we have no proof to say that Starbucks is supporting Israel until there's clear evidence. And as far as I know, there is no evidence being provided in this situation. So the doubt comes from rumors that people are spreading, right? People in the community are talking, yeah, I heard Starbucks supports Israel. Is there any proof being mentioned? No. So the general principle is that, you know, we are certain that since we have no evidence, that they are innocent until proven guilty. Now that's on a general mass level, right? So as a public opinion, you know, someone says that Israel, uh, sorry, Starbucks is supporting Israel, we'll say, look, we can't accept that until you bring proof for it, right? That's the general rule. However, on a personal level, if someone feels uncomfortable not buying Starbucks, you like second cup better, you like Tim Hortons better, you want to save a couple of more dollars, that's perfectly fine. There's not an issue with that. There's not an issue with that. And I know it's going to create discussion. I'm expecting this. As a personal opinion, like I said, I don't drink Starbucks. I'm not even a, a, a big coffee guy. So on a personal level, you are allowed to do whatever you want. But to make people feel bad that, you know, it's haram for you to go to Starbucks. Or you're not a good Muslim if you go to Starbucks. I believe that's really pushing it, right? So up until someone can provide clear evidence that this is what they're doing, then, you know, that is the case. Now, as a counter-argument to this, at the same time, I do find it interesting that Starbucks needs to constantly keep defending itself, right? And I do find it interesting that the CEO himself has not distanced himself from the Zionist lobby. Those are two completely different matters, right? Two completely different matters. So this type of application of the hadith in this situation would not be correct. So now what constitutes doubt? What constitutes doubts is that remember these guidelines that I provided you with, you're going to make a claim, you have to bring proof. That proof has to be authentic. Then it has to be relevant. There are going to be certain circumstances where you will disagree with another individual. Okay? That person will have proof. That proof will be authentic. That proof will be relevant. And in that situation, a person becomes doubtful. Hey, you know, is what I'm doing correct or is what this person is saying correct? In that situation, 
the certainty that you have is what you remain with until you become certain that an other person's proof is, co uh, is correct or is applicable, or that opinion is applicable, uh, applicable in the situation. So if the Sharia provides a proof for you, then in that situation, you can use this hadith. Likewise, if you see something with your own eyes, right? You will see something with your own eyes, and there's a testament to someone else saying that, you know what, we didn't see it in the situation. And I'll give you a particular example. So in the situation where a sighting of the moon is required for the month of Ramadan, you are the only individual that saw the moon and you're certain you saw the moon, right? There's no doubt in your mind that you saw the moon. Yet, your testimony is not accepted because the law of the land, it says, you know what, we need two people to testify, right? So your testimony is not accepted. What do you do in that situation? Should you start fasting or should you go with what the majority are doing? In that situation, you should start fasting because you're certain you saw the moon, right? That is what you should do on a personal level. Should you, you know, uh, put other people down because they're not listening to your opinion? No, because they're following, not you, but they're following the ruler of the Muslim lands at that time. So that's like an example of where you see something, you're certain about it, but other people aren't, right? So your certainty is in what you saw and not, and not what public opinion is actually saying at that time. Then number three is when there's unanimous consensus on something, right? So one of the proofs of the Sharia is unanimous consensus. When all the scholars of a given time will say something, then you're not allowed to introduce a third opinion in that matter. And rather you're restricted to those things. So an individual, you know, he starts studying Islam now, he comes with a fresh new opinion, he's like, look, I think this opinion is valid. In this situation, regardless of, you know, how you feel, your opinion on a personal level is doubt compared to the certainty that the scholars attained. So they'll have certainty because it's a unanimous decision, whereas your opinion, just because you believe in it strongly as it may be, is still considered doubt because it is a personal opinion. So that is two hadith. Now I can open up the floor for questions. Go ahead. Um, I just want to make sure I understand you correctly about the first hadith. Right. Uh, With the exception of stealing, with the exception of stealing. Yeah. So let's say if there is a unknown drug dealer yeah. uh, who wants to come and you know, give, give money to the mosque, um, or give money to the community. Right. Um, does, that, does that mean that, you know, or if you have a store and you know, that drug dealer is coming to you and he's buying something from you, right. what would you do? I mean, does that mean you can accept this money or burn it? Okay, so there's a qu the question over here is in terms of permissibility and in terms of what is the better thing to do, right? So in terms of permissibility, yes, it is permissible to accept that money and there's no harm in that whatsoever. Because like I said, the changing of the hands, it purifies the money. In terms of what is the better thing to do, and I'll think particularly from a level of you know, store versus masjid, in a store, you may want to take a stance, you know what, I have a no drug dealer policy in my store. And you know, we're not gonna allow this in my store. So you can't take that sort of stance when it comes to a store. But when it comes to the, the, the masjid, no one owns the masjid. The masjid is the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If the drug dealer is coming to the masjid, we want him to come to the masjid, right? So if he's giving his money, it's like, Jazakallah khair, we'll accept it, but you need to stop drug dealing. And we'll hope that he will, he'll listen to, to what the imam has to say at that time. So I think on the case-by-case -case scenario, you, you'll take it. But the general rule is that yes, that money would be acceptable. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Go ahead. 
Yeah. So there is one hadith as I remember. Rasulullah said that three categories from people. One is the prostitutes money. So how do we understand that hadith? So that person is, leaving, is leading a life of double haram. That's what we're saying. So one, the source of income that they're earning, they're, but that profession that they're earning, they're getting sin for that profession. And number two, that money that they have is actually haram for themselves. Right, so when they're buying food from it, when they're buying drink from it, that consumption of those things from the money that they have is haram for them as well. Because that source is impure, right? But when they give that money to someone else, that money becomes purified. So that hadith is still valid, and I know which hadith you're talking about. But that's on a personal level. So a person who has haram money, he's not allowed to use it for himself. He needs to get rid of it. And this is why even when an individual, you know, uh, he has interest in his account. So you open up a bank account, they force you to take the interest, right? So at the end of the day, you're not allowed consuming that interest yourself. You have to give that interest away. Whether it be to the masjid, whether it be to you know, a poor person, whatever you can, you're not allowed to consume that yourself. That is the general rule. So I have another one day, Starbucks. So Starbucks, yes. Yeah. There we go. So the, but if they help them, is right. I would say that if you can prove that any organization, not even just Starbucks, you know, things like Coca-Cola, things like Pepsi, as long as there's proof that these people are supporting the Zionist movement, we should try to the best of our ability to boycott these organizations and, and these groups. That is the absolute minimum that we can do, right? I understand that drinking generic Coke from Superstore is going to taste disgusting compared to the regular Coke. But really, what is worth more? The taste that we get from these soft drinks or, the, or helping our brothers and sisters you know, across the world? So I'm not going to say it's wajib. I'm not going to say it's mandatory. But I'm going to say that it's something that's highly recommended to do. Like this, I mean We're going to do this by hand. So. I, I Right. And this is where I think we need to differentiate between Judaism and Zionism, right? So Judaism is a religious faith. Zionism is an ideological movement where some of them may be Jewish, they can also be non-Jewish. And that is the establishment of the modern state of Israel. So there's two different things. So the Messenger of Allah interacting with the Jewish people of faith, that's something that, that's still allowed. Because yes, there are good members of the Jewish faith. Not all Jewish people are, are evil, you know, what, according, uh, contrary to what some Muslims may believe. So yes, we are allowed to do business with them and transact with them. But at the end of the day, our allegiance should be for our Muslim brothers and sisters. That continue to aid your brother, whether he is the oppressor or being oppressed, right? So in this situation, I believe this is a part of helping our brothers over, uh, overseas. So it's not against Judaism, it's against the Zionist lobby. That, that is what I'm saying. Wallahu alam. Adnan, go ahead. No, no, I, I disagree with that. There are certain people that will openly support Israel. Like you look at SodaStream. 
Right? SodaStream, uh, some of you might not be familiar with it, but it's a company that allows you to make soda in your own house. And this company is like openly supporting, you know, we will support the, the Zionist movement. And that is why you, when you look at BDS, which is the boycott organization, this is one of the first groups that did boycott. And it was in England itself that after two years of boycott, they've had to close their headquarters in England now. Right? So there are certain organizations that are going to be open about it. And those are the organizations that, you know, that flaunt, hey, we're going to be supporting the Zionist lobby. Those are the ones that need to be boycott. Allahu ta'ala. Go ahead. Um, it's really interesting that we're talking about boycotting, um, let's say, boycotting the Starbucks. Because if you think about Starbucks, they, you know, they promote uh, fair trade and they, you know, and it's been really that they actually really contribute a lot to, to Muslim and Muslim countries in terms of uh, promoting it. For example, the, big, the government of Canada, Mr. Stephen Harper, he's a firm supporter of Israel. Right. That time but at the same time, if you really look at what Canada is doing for, for us as Muslim people who live here, we can practice religion way better than we can practice religion in Syria. Of course. Definitely. What I'm trying to say is that you know, it, 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 it has to be, like you said before, something that you have to kind of take with brain of salt is that, you know, if we're going to boycott someone, we should boycott America and Canada. But they say that they do for us and they give money to Muslim people. They, they help does it. They always send money to does it. They mm -hmm. also help Israel. So it's really, you know, I, I think it's very important to differentiate between businesses and governments over here, right? Not really. <laughs> They're two different things. We, while we do pay taxes, taxes is not a, a business transaction per se, right? So in this situation, I'll tell you a completely different argument that is brought up. And that is that, you know, the money that we pay in taxes, it goes towards the governments, of, uh, it goes towards the armies of governments that are invading Muslim lands. So how can we pay taxes in this situation? We should stop paying taxes. And I believe this is nonsense. That is such a nonsensical opinion. That exactly. <laughs> I feel really bad saying this, but the, one of the majorities on welfare lists are Muslims, right? They're the number one receivers of welfare and unemployment insurance. And that's what taxes go towards. Like in terms of childcare benefit, we produce the most amount of babies. All that money is coming back into the Muslim community. Likewise, in terms of, of Medicare, likewise, in terms of even the army situation of itself, that yes, while we may disagree with some of the foreign policies that Canada and America may have, at the end of the day, we still need those armies in place because what if Canada gets invaded one day? What if, well, we'll talk about Canada in our situation. What if Canada gets invaded one day? We need an army to defend our own selves, right? So yes, we will disagree with the foreign policy, but we look at things based upon the majority of actions, right? So the majority of things that our taxes go towards, inshallah, are halal things, right? That's how I would discuss that. We'll take last two, then I need to move on to the next two hadith. So go ahead, and then we'll come to you, inshallah. Right. Are we moving to a second issue now? Oh, that's a second issue. Okay, so in terms of, okay, so what do we do with the 18 million shares? So he owns 18 million shares 
that's share, but that, let's say it's 20 percent right of the shares of starbucks so right 20 percent of the revenue of the profit that is put into share is going to him for his personal uh income right, right? so <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You can't just make a, you know, an objection without a follow-up action. So if the follow-up action is that because he owns 20% of the company, we should boycott the company, then the counter to that is, again, 80% of the company is still owned by other people, right? So what he does with his personal finances, that's completely up to him. To call for a company boycott based upon the actions of the majority stakeholder, that's what I believe is far-fetched. Like I said, personally, I don't support it. I believe whoever wants to go can go. Whoever doesn't want to go doesn't go. But we don't have the right to say that, you know, uh, a Muslim is bad for going to like Starbucks or something. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I don't think it's haram. Right. I think there's, there's haram and there's like Allah al So what is better to do? So even the, the better thing the to better do. If you're spending $1, are you okay with 20%, 20 cents if every dollar you spend? This is overcomplicating matters. But Jazakallah Khair, that's fantastic. Let's go to the second issue so now. The second issue is that I think when it comes to, let's say, a drug dealer yeah. or a parent who has 100% of their income coming from one source, which is a little, it's a little bit different from saying that someone who has part of his income uh, coming from illegitimate reason. And there's, there's that difference. So if, if you say, if you, if you know someone who's making 20%, half of his uh, uh, income coming from one source, then you say you, you can assume that the income exchange that I'm doing is that, that from clean percentage of his income. Right. When it's 100% uh, is coming from an illegitimate source, then it's a difference in Allah. So in terms of trading, what you're saying that wealth is not purified by exchange of hands. So, so for example, I heard that, you know, that if you're a parent, right. you know, if their 90% of their income is coming from illegitimate, while 10% is coming from legitimate source, you can assume that this 10% is, uh, that you're getting your eating from, is coming from that 10%. Right. When it's, one, when it's 100% and you're adult, you can make your own money. Okay, so now we're getting into secondary things over here. Though that's a, a secondary issue that yes, you should still strive hard for yourself and try to get out of that situation. I agree with that 100%. But as a general rule, regardless if it's 100% of their wealth or 1% of their wealth, any exchange that takes place, that is a purification of the wealth. That is the general rule of it. Even if you know before it happens. With the exception of wealth being stolen, that is the only time that wealth cannot be purified. The only way that wealth will be purified is by returning it to its rightful owner. Allahu ta'ala <laughs> Okay, let's move on to the next set of hadith. Hadith number 11. That the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa said, part of the perfection of one's Islam is leaving that which does not concern him. So here the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa is teaching us about the importance of good character. So now when you look at the intention that Imam Nawawi rahimahullah had in compiling his 42 hadith, it was to teach Muslims not only the fundamentals of their aqidah, but also the fundamentals of their akhlaq. 
And I believe that when it comes to akhlaq, that before one can go about attaining good akhlaq, they need to leave off bad akhlaq, right? That is the general rule. That before you can come into tawheed, you need to leave off shirk first, right? Same thing over here. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is teaching us what one of the worst characteristics to have is. And that is to be concerned about the personal affairs of other people's lives. So the general rule is that when it comes to the matters of other people, do not concern yourself with them. Someone wants to come to you and asks you for advice, that's something that's perfectly fine. But if you know someone has you know, uh, some personal issues in their lives, don't go about seeking them. That's one of the worst characteristics to have. In fact, when you look at you know, um, an element of Islam, in terms of how or when it's, it's permissible to physically harm another individual, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he taught us that if someone tries to, to peek through your door, you're allowed putting a stick through their door to, to stab them back with it, right? And this just shows that this is something that's a very, very bad habit. Spying on people, you know, looking over their affairs when they don't want you to, eavesdropping on other people's conversations. These are all very, very bad characteristics to have. The Muslim is always above and beyond that. Now what is the, the simple reasoning behind that? Because at the end of the day, each individual has their own amount of sins, has their own amount of problems that they need to worry about first before they can worry about the sins and problems of other people. So once you've taken care of your own sins and your own problems, then yes, maybe we can involve ourselves in other people's affairs. But that level of piety, that level, level of righteousness is seldom attained. And likewise, to constantly busy yourself, then this is something that is incorrect. So one of the bad characteristics in Islam is to constantly want to know what is going on in the lives of other people. And this is something that should completely be avoided. If it doesn't directly concern you, stay away from it altogether. Stay away from it altogether. The general principle or what we call mafhum al-mukhalafa that is derived from this hadith is that not only should you not be concerned about the lives of other people, but rather be extremely concerned about your own personal life. Right? Be extremely concerned in terms of what answers are you going to give on the Day of Judgment? What answers are you going to give in the grave? What good deeds are you doing? What good bad deeds are you staying away from and fighting your nafs against? Right? Those are the things that one should be focused on and that was, that, those are the lessons that can be derived from this hadith. Hadith number 12. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, None of you truly believes till he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. So when the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, none of you truly believes, it doesn't mean that your Iman is deficient, that your Iman is lacking anything, but rather what it means is, your Iman will not be perfected. So a person could have fulfilled the obligations of Iman, but their Iman will not be perfected until they love for their brothers what they love for themselves, from the good of this dunya and from the abstinence of bad. So you see your brother in need, Give, from your give for your brother that which you love for yourself. When it comes time to give to sadaqah, imagine yourself in that situation. How much sadaqah would you want another person to give for you at that time? Then that is how much you should give. Your neighbor is hungry, make sure the food that you have, you share with them. Likewise, you know your brother or sister is making a very bad life decision. So you think to yourself, you know what, maybe I should just leave them alone. No, if you were in that situation, you would want someone to advise you, right? So go ahead and advise them. This is part of loving for our brother and sister, what we love for ourselves. So those are two hadith. And I remember you had your hand up and I forgot to ask you what it was. Please go ahead. Yes. Okay. 
So the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said, help your brother whether he is oppressing or whether he is oppressed or being oppressed. So they said, Ya Rasulullah, we know how to help someone when he's being oppressed, but how do we help someone when he is a zalim? Right? How do we help someone when he's, he is the one that is oppressing? So the Messenger of Allah said, you help him by advising him. So you know, you tell him that, look, what you're doing is wrong. So that is how you help them in that situation. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Any questions on these two hadith? Fine. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Right. Right. How do you differentiate between the two? So in scenario number one, you know, it's like me going around to each and every single brother here. So what are the problems in your life? You know, what's going wrong? I don't have the intention to help them. I just want to know because I'm curious about what's going on in their lives. However, Sajjad comes to me one day and he says, you know what? Uh, Khisal, he has this problem X, Y, and Z. You know, it might be a good idea. Oh, sorry. Khisal's about to make this decision. You know, what do you think about this decision? And I was like, look, I don't think that's a good decision. So I go in and advise Khisal. So I didn't seek out that information, but someone came and gave it to me anyways. So we shouldn't consciously be seeking, you know, other people's personal lives. However, if it comes to us and we know what they're doing is bad, then we should advise them in that situation. Who is next? Even more reason to help them. Even more reason to help them. Inshallah, through your help, they'll hopefully be guided to Islam, inshallah. Let's move on to the last two hadith. Uh, hadith number 13, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, where is it? Uh, actually, sorry, we're going on to hadith number 14. Hadith number 14 also we didn't cover. And that is, when is it... Uh, allowed to kill another individual due to the sensitive nature of that we're leaving that till the end of the, the course inshallah hadith number 15 the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said let he who believes in Allah in the last day speak good or remain silent let he who believes in Allah in the last day be generous to his neighbor let he who believes in Allah in the last day be generous to his guest so the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam again is teaching us three uh, good characteristics to have characteristic number one is that before you speak, you should always make sure what you're about to say is good. If you don't find good in it, then remain silent, right? So make sure when you speak, you always think before you speak, rather than thinking after you speak. The thinking should take place before, just so that you don't regret it. An individual, when he speaks, he can't take his words back, right? So before we make mistakes, before we say things we shouldn't say, it's always better to contemplate and think before we speak. Number two is that we should be generous towards our neighbors. We were just discussing that. That our neighbors have rights upon us. Jibreel came to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and continued to advise him about the neighbor until the Messenger of Allah وسلم, thought that the neighbor would become someone that would inherit from us. That is how much Jibreel continued to advise with righteousness to the neighbor. So our, the general rule is that always reach out to your neighbor. You know, yes, we'll have some neighbors that are extremely bad, right? They'll do terrible things. But still we should show some kindness to them and try to bear the harms that they show towards us. This is part of being a good neighbor. And then the last one is generosity towards one's guest. And I believe this is something that is being lost in this day and age, is hosting people. You know, in the beginning of Islam, someone comes from outside of the city, it is considered an act of nobility that a person hosts another person, that you stay with that person, you feed that person, you take care of their needs. In our day and age, you know, that concept of hosting is being lost. You know, someone comes into your house 
And it's like, okay, how can I help you? Right? That's how we treat them. And it's like we're even hesitant to give them water. Whereas we should be doing much, much more for the guests when they come to our house. These are from you know, the adab and akhlaq of Islam. And I'll mention the story that I mentioned when we discussed this hadith. And that was the story of a Bedouin man that you know, he had no food. And he didn't want to leave his, uh, his guest hungry. So he tells his son, look, my dear son, we have no food, we have no money. So at night time, you know, if our guest asks for food, is it okay if I slaughter you and feed you to the, to the guest? And obviously this is a made up story, it's not a real story. But it's a, a story that was, it was mentioned to show the, the generosity of the uh, Arabs of old. And the son, he says, my dear father, if this is truly the want of our guest, then yes, I would sacrifice myself for our guest. Right? So that is how far they would go in you know, serving their guests. So don't slaughter your children. I'm not saying that's what you do. But you know, show some kindness to your, to your guests when they come over. These are from the good akhlaq of Islam. So next week, ta'ala, we'll be starting up with hadith number 17. This is just a brief recap from our last recap. We did a recap from 1 to 5. Now we did a hadith, uh, recap from 6 to 16. And next week we will be starting with hadith number 17, which is the hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, that Allah has commanded us with ihsan in everything that we do, even in the sacrificing of the animal. So we'll be talking about excellence, we'll be talking about animal rights, and then we'll also be talking about the slaughtering of the animal. That'll be on Wednesday at 8 p.m. at the 8th and 8th Musallah. So it's going to be twice a week, Wednesday nights at 8th and 8th, Friday nights at Edmonton Trail, both of them at 8 p.m. It is now time for Salatul Maghrib, so we'll conclude with that. If you have any questions, I'll address them after Salatul Maghrib. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik, ashadu la ilaha illa ant, astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.